A chance again to give this old world of ours a kick in its axis. Hello there, I'm Michael Jackson, here anytime to share thoughts, comments and ideas. One thing is almost guaranteed. If the high-priced attorneys, led by the famed Howard Weitzman, are unable to convince the judge that Paris Hilton should not serve her sentence in the L.A. jail, she will almost certainly return to an even more adoring celebrity existence. Fame is a glittering bauble, and she knows well how to spin it. Last week, as well the world knows, she was sentenced to 45 days in jail for violating her probation on a previous DUI-related conviction. It was in February that L.A. police pulled Paris over on Sunset Boulevard for driving at a high rate of speed, and doing so with a suspended license. She told the judge that she was unaware that her license was suspended. However, according to the L.A. city attorney's office, she had twice been notified of the suspension by police and was also sent a notice by the DMV. So, dressed in black and white stripes, she'll most likely be starting her next reality show, Jail on June 5th. You know, it worked well for Martha Stewart. Her stature, her wealth have grown considerably since she did time in the federal pen. A quote from Miss Hilton to the judge before sentence was passed. I'm sorry, and I didn't do it on purpose at all. I wonder what she does do on purpose. A personal note, speaking of attorney Howard Weitzman, he was one of the very few people who gained stature and enormous success following the role he played on the defense team in the O.J. Simpson murder case. During the trial of the murderer, found innocent in the criminal case, I used to frequently place calls to members of the defense team to have conversations with them on the air. They were most enlightening. I think, though, the truth was a single line that I heard on more than one occasion from attorney Weitzman's wife when I called and identified myself. She said simply, speaking of O.J., he did it. On one of the occasions when I replaced or sat in for Larry King on his CNN TV show, the panel of guests included Harvard professor of law Alan Dershowitz. He told me that O.J. did it. Four days later, the professor was on the O.J. defense team. I never, ever heard him say that again. Ain't crime grand? By the way, I was delighted to read just this week that Mr. Simpson was kicked out of a steakhouse by the owner when he showed up with a bunch of friends following the Kentucky Derby. Maybe they only serve winners. Look back a short while ago at the proposed immigration reform offered by George W. Bush. Overall, it really was reasonable. Now, apparently, it's been cast aside as too soft, not hard enough on undocumented people. His idea sought to give illegal immigrants a way of eventually achieving citizenship. He also proposed making it easier for future immigrants to reside temporarily in the United States as guest workers. There are more and more calls for a tougher approach. So recently, the White House has talked of charging guest workers punitive fees for the permits that they would need to acquire. They also call for sending home the illegals for extended periods. This is surely not such a good idea. It's not workable. Yes, of course, it will look tougher, but it wouldn't put the immigrants on a sounder footing, nor would it succeed in cutting down their ever-mounting numbers. Immigration reform is and has been one of the most bitterly contested topics in Washington, D.C., and more and more across the country. The president claims that a deal can still be achieved on comprehensive reform. I doubt it, not during the remaining period of the Bush administration. 
We, I feel, need the millions of illegal immigrants who live here. They are hard workers. In large measure, they're doing jobs that Americans don't want. If they were to be repatriated, say, to their country of origin tomorrow, there would be enormous problems for all of us. Many of the laws currently being tossed around on Capitol Hill would be unenforceable. We should guard our borders, yes, for many reasons, and we should send to Washington men and women who have the courage to enact the fairest of immigration reform laws. Our policy on the immigration of skilled workers is really off the mark, even more so. Of course, we offer annual visa quotas, but they're filled within days of their being offered. We then turn away thousands of highly skilled, highly well-trained, hard-working young people from all over the world, and then they go elsewhere. And what we are seeing more and more as a result of this is American companies taking the jobs to the would-be immigrants. In other words, high-tech offshoring of United States companies. All round, it is sounding sort of defeatist when you take into account that we are, we are the nation of immigrants. How the world has changed. When as an Englishman, 40 or so years ago, I wanted to apply for entry and eventual citizenship in this country, I just went to the American Embassy in Grosvenor Square in London. They gave me forms set a time later that day, and I was on the ship about two weeks later. It once was so easy, no more. The French have had a dozen years of directionless leadership under their ineffective and moody president, Jacques Chirac. Despite that, the French voted in record numbers to replace him with one of Chirac's ministers, a political insider, Nicolas Sarkozy, the son of immigrants, his father a Hungarian and his mother a Greek Jew. The French electorate has given their future leader a mandate to bring about constructive change. Less than a month ago, 40% of the voters were completely undecided. If nothing else is known for sure, one thing is for certain. With Nicolas Sarkozy, they have a very different sort of leader. He won the election, promising sweeping change to voters frustrated by and with their country's long economic decline. From all that Sarkozy has said, he hopes and intends to strengthen ties with the United States, while at the same time pursuing a more active role in Europe. By the way, he was in accord with Monsieur Chirac in opposing the war in Iraq from the word go. It's just his style is far less aggressive than Chirac's. Next month, the French vote for their National Assembly, and the new president is sure that he can win a clear parliamentary majority. He has proclaimed that he'll be cutting taxes across a broad front. He claims he will cut spending and, above all, loosen France's rigidly regulated labour market. His pledge is to create more and better jobs for particularly the young. Sounds just like a successful politician. Next comes achieving the goals. This is a hot-headed and determined man who's been looked at very carefully by his fellow countrymen, and they know what to expect. He says that he will be president of all the French. Quite a task, and his ability to carry out the changes he is hoping to bring about might well depend on how well his right-wing allies do in next month's parliamentary elections. He needs a very wide political coalition. That's France. By the time you hear this, a change will have come about on that effervescent, frequently funny panel of women collectively referred to as The View. The network, ABC, the boss, Barbara Walters. 
Women may come and go, but nowhere nearly as frequently as one might have expected in that environment. They each make their mark and contributions, and as the program has endured, the size of the audience would corroborate my feeling that, with a very few exceptions, it just gets better. The most recent to go, Rosie O'Donnell. As convinced as I was that she'd never fit in, I fess up to being fully 100% wrong. She was a smashing contributor. Rumor has been banding around a few hints at just who might or should be Rosie's successor. Roseanne Barr, Joan Rivers, Whoopi Goldberg. I make no prophecy this time, but despite the fact that a spokesperson from Ms. Barr told the media that she has not even been approached about the job, I'll bet she'd like the chance and might well get the chance to take up that number one spot at the end of the Oval Table. By the end of June, Tony Blair will have departed as head of Britain's Labour Party and thus as Prime Minister. With his departure will close an era during which the country has been involved in several wars, stayed sort of aloof from Europe, enjoyed some considerable prosperity, and aligned itself more with the United States than at any time since World War II. It's fair to say that in this country, Prime Minister Blair will be best remembered as the lead ally after the September 11, 2001 attacks. It didn't help his standing in Britain. He has been in the forefront of cementing peace in Northern Ireland. As Alan Cow put it in the International New York Times, he has, some argued, achieved the highest political accolade, converting not just his followers but also his opponents to the notion of a caring society. Nicely put. Nowadays, because of his leadership, even Britain's opposition conservatives now strive to present themselves as a party of compassion. Pragmatically, Blair showed that he and his Labourites could run a government and an economy. It has been, for nearly a decade, that he proved himself to be one of the most successful leaders in Labour history. He is the only Labour leader to win three straight election victories. Sadly, though, for many... There is just one word that will be used to equate with his time in office. Iraq. It must have hurt to hear his detractors refer to him as Bush's poodle. Undoubtedly, he became our major ally in the 2003 invasion. There is much more to the man, including the thought that he has narrowed the chasm between conservatives and labor. On his watch, Britain has weathered terrorist attacks and several alleged conspiracies. He's presided over a tightening of laws pertaining to terrorism. He came to the fore and leadership in a blaze of glory, really welcomed by the masses. He leaves at the right time, having failed in his attempts to improve the state education system. But, despite the failings, he is far and away the most successful leader in Labour Party history. Does it seem possible to you that we're approaching the 10th anniversary of the tragic, sudden, unexpected death of Britain's Princess Diana, the plethora of TV exposés, of books, magazine articles, have certainly kept the story alive. I was sent over by ABC to broadcast from London on the weekend of her funeral. After checking in to my accommodations on the evening before the event, I set out to walk the route of the poor-bearing cortege, from Buckingham Palace along Park Avenue, skirting Hyde Park to Marble Arch, encompassing Admiralty Arch and Pall Mall, Whitehall over to Kensington Palace, and to Westminster Abbey for the service. I walked for hours. It was a humid, muggy evening in London, and the crowds were gathering from long before sunset the evening before. It was not as I might have imagined in advance. 
a sombre gathering of hundreds of thousands, later to become millions of fellow citizens. There were flags everywhere, and parents with young children, old folk wrapped up for the night, and quite a bit of singing, impromptu and respectful. The highlight for me was around 11 p.m., when network TVs from all over the world began to turn on their lights to illuminate the scene at the Abbey. Just then, three busloads of singers, and I think they were coal miners from Wales, began singing. I shall always remember the beauty of their voices and the sounds in the night air. Ten years, and people still, it appears, want to know more about the princess. To assuage the desire, there will be at least 14 new books about her life and death set for publication this year. The Wall Street Journal came up with a staggering and hard-to-believe fact that there are 180 Diana books in print in the United States alone. I wonder how many contain the truth, and are there yet more truths to be learned? I wonder. Before I forget, and we all probably will, in the half-century, in the 50 years following the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki of World War II, according to the authoritative United States Nuclear Weapons Cost Study Project, this country has spent a lot of money on nuclear weapons. To be precise, we have spent $3.9 trillion. $3.9 trillion on nuclear weapons. Can you just imagine how great our country would be if we had that $3.9 trillion? Yes, of course, we've achieved so much, an enormous amount. But if we had had that money to spend elsewhere in different ways, what a wondrous world it would have become. And once again, thank you for being with us for a while. The welcome mat is always out anytime from anywhere. I'm Michael Jackson. 